Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com. Since the original recording of this episode with Rebecca Kiesling, she has tragically lost two of her sons, Caleb and Kyler. I ask that you keep Rebecca and her family in your prayers. Today we have a very special guest, Rebecca Kiesling. She's an attorney, a mother of five, a pro-life speaker, although that doesn't really do her justice. And she's here to speak to us today about not only the, the gift of life, but the gift of every single life without exception. And uh, Rebecca, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for having me, Dickon. Well, you know, I've, I've watched a lot of your YouTube videos uh, and, you know, there's I'm sure a lot of people know who you are because you're out nationally and internationally uh, about how you were conceived and raped. But I thought if you could talk about your story a little bit, and then we can kind of get into why any type of these exceptions in pro-life legislation is a train wreck. Sure. Um, A lot of people think that, uh, you know, my life story is controversial, which is, which is, such a shame. I mean, that my life itself is controversial. Um, My story is not just like, oh, an uplifting, life-affirming story where my mother chose life. And and people say, oh, well, that was her choice, wasn't it? It's all about choice. Oh, that's not my story. My story is that I was conceived when my birth mother was abducted at knife point by a serial rapist. She chose abortion. She went to two illegal abortions and backed out last minute only because it was illegal, because of the back alley conditions, and fear for her own safety. I absolutely would have been aborted if it had been legal, and I owe my birth to the law which protected me. I met my birth mother when I was 18. She was really happy to meet me. But when I asked her about abortion, she told me the truth and said that she would have aborted me if it had been legal, even if she had to do it all over again. And she maintained that it should have been my right. You don't know what it was like. And then six years later, she changed her mind about abortion. And now decades later, we are both so thankful that we were both protected and spared the horror of abortion. Out of all three children, I'm the only one she has a relationship with today. I'm the one who honors her. And, you know, it wasn't too late for her to change her mind. She was able to have a relationship with me because we were both protected. Legality matters. Well, and this was in Michigan, right? Like, right before Roe versus Wade, right? Yes. Uh, I was born July 22nd, 1969. The trial date in Roe, the hearing was May 22nd, 1970. And the U.S. Supreme Court decision was exactly three and a half years to my birth date. And in the United States, um, they began legalizing abortion in cases of rape in 67. Yeah, we know, because here in Colorado, that's what exactly would have been the case. Your mom would have been able to do it. It would have been legal here. So when you found out that you were 
a victim of rape. How did that how did that affect your psyche and how old were you when you found that out? I was 18 when I learned how I was conceived and 19 when I met my birth mother and I instantly felt targeted and devalued by society. I knew what people said and I instantly realized that I was now in a position where I was forever going to have to justify my own existence and prove that I shouldn't have been afforded. A few years ago, I got an email from a woman who wanted to know, she was demanding to know what good I've done in my life to justify what I did to my mother. Well, I'd hate to have anybody ask me that question. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it may sound like I was the one raping my mother, and that's what they say. They'll say, oh, it was a second rape. Like the child raping, I, and I told her, you know, let me clarify, please. <laughs> I was not raping my mother. I was innocent. I plead my innocence. And, and that's to some people, that just how absurd that sounds, but that really is what people are suggesting. And, um, and they did back when you found out, and they're still doing it today, right? Yeah. And, and I went through the good but I know that I have an interest in anyone else, um, but I know that I'm not worthless, but and I, I hope all of your listeners know that they are too, but it, it hurts. I know today, I, because I know my worth, I'm whole. I do what I do not because I feel that I need to prove my worth. Um, or to justify my own existence. I do it out of gratitude that my own life was saved. And I feel like I was spared from a burning building. And as I have the opportunity to go back and save others, I'm going to do it because there are millions who are just as worthy of love and life as I am or others. And they are still yet at risk. And I think that the most selfish thing you could do would be to say, well, at least I'm alive. At least I was wanted and not care about the rest and do anything to go back and save others. Well, and we're all created with that inherent dignity. It doesn't matter how we were conceived or came into this world. We all know the Lord can make great good out of terrible evil. And look, rape is a terrible evil, but... You were you're the gift, right? You're you are what God turned into the beauty of such a terrible situation. You know, I've heard people say that um, when certain politicians like Rick Santorum, Senator Rick Santorum, said that you know Rick Santorum says that if you were ready to become pregnant, that that rape was a gift from God. Like, like they're perfect. You know? And they, they totally twist it. Um, I get called things like rape trophy, rape apologist, like as if we're promoting rape. And I explain to people that, you know, first of all, I believe in a worldview that good can come out of evil, that can overcome evil. Um, but also, like, I tell people, look, you can be pro- law enforcement and not pro-crime, or you can be pro-soldier and not pro-war, even though it's true that, you know, without crime, there'd be no law enforcement, you know, I mean, that's 
that's like the same kind of logic that they're using. You know, oh, rape would be no Becca, so you must be pro-rape. I mean, it, it's absolutely absurd. Well, and really, how you know, how can you really be pro-life if all of a sudden you start making exceptions? Well, whether it's rape or incest, I mean, we hear it, we hear it all the time. But either that's a child in its mother's womb, an innocent child, or it isn't. You can't make exceptions. You know, people like to play God, and boy, that gets you in trouble every single time. So I ask people, um, you know, we first of all, it's pro-lifers who are willing to make an exception. That's just modern-day child sacrifice. It is, and it's an abomination. You know, people try to say that we're barbaric because we don't make rape exceptions. Is in punishing an innocent child for crime. In civilized society, you don't do that. That's barbaric. And they'll try to say, oh, you're antiquated. No, you know what's antiquated? It's child sacrifice. You know, they're the ones who are, it's not progressive to engage in child sacrifice. Um, and when you're willing to, you know, throw the child conceived in rape to the wolves, you know, for a pawn or a bargaining chip, I mean, that's just, that's child sacrifice. And uh, I'll ask people when they say that, you know, you have to have abortion cases, rape, I'll ask them, tell me, would you support a law that would authorize all victims? to be able to pay someone to kill her rapist or just her innocent child. Because that's what it is. This is a hired hit. You know, Planned Parenthood abortion clinics are hitmen. They're paid assassins. And this is what you're talking about. Imagine if you, you had a law that, you know, without a trial, nothing, you could, a rape victim could just hunt and it was perfectly legal to go kill her rapist. Can you imagine the outrage? Like yep. Men all of a sudden be like, whoa, 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 slow down, you know? Yep. Right? Yep. And the United States Supreme Court in Coker v. Georgia said that rapists don't deserve the death penalty. And in Kennedy v. Louisiana, the Supreme Court said that each per child molesters, it's cruel and usual punishment. So how is it? that the innocent child, no trial, no nothing, gets death penalty for his crime. Well, yeah, I think, you know, it, what, what makes it even more detestable is that people only do this, Planned Parenthood only does this, people support this because of the money, right? I mean, no one cared about your mom when she was pregnant and, and you were conceived out of that rape. They wanted her money to do the deal. Right. I mean, they were going to kill you for money. And and when it didn't work out, you know what? They just saw that as a lost revenue opportunity, not yep. not trying to help your mom. And back then, it was dollars. That was the price on my head. How much was it again? You kind of cut out a little bit. What did it say? Five hundred. Five hundred. That was the price on my head. And when she backed out, the, the abortion doctor called her back the next day to try to talk her in because he wanted that money. Sure. Sure. I think that's what makes it, you know, 
that they'll come up, Planned Parenthood, and I'm sure, you know, look, we're in Colorado and we have a ballot initiative to end late-term abortion. There is no rape exception. And they're going to come out with all these sob stories when I'm talking here to Rebecca Kiesling, who is was conceived in rape, is, is a mom of five, I mean, is an attorney, I mean, is doing so much good work that could easily have never been done had your mom been successful. And to, and to use these exceptions uh, to try to twist people to, to vote, to continue to support abortion, it is only for the filthy money. It has nothing to do with them having any compassion for the woman, the child, for anybody involved. It's all about money. And that's what my birth mother said. She, nobody offered her any other help or hope, just abortion. She told me there were no pregnancy resource centers back then, but if there had been, she would have gone. Yeah, I mean, how, you know, and, and you have a very good relationship with her now. You know, and one of the arguments is, well, we have to do this because this will just be a terrible reminder of, of that, you know, that assault, that terrible crime that took place. Uh, what is her feeling now? I know you said she changed. She's now pro-life. But I mean, how how did she views you as this great gift, doesn't it? You're the only one of her children that has a relationship with her. Yeah, and she's you know, super proud of me. She's coming to hear me speak. We were interviewed on the program Extra together years ago, Glamour Magazine. And, you know, I'm in one of the interviews, she said, and, and now I have my daughter and the sun just shines in her. It was like so sweet. Um <laughs> You know, on my birthday, when my grandmother died on my birthday several years ago, she called me and threw me in the news, and we had a long heart-to-heart. We were about to hang up, and she just called out, you know, Rebecca, Rebecca, and just crying. She said, I'm so glad I had you. And, you know, that was the best birthday gift ever, to hear her say that. Um and that's that's what's at stake in Colorado. You know, this is not a theoretical exercise that, you know, maybe we might save babies, but by passing this law, there will be mothers in your state who will one day be able to say to their children, I'm so glad I had you. That's what this is about, women who wouldn't otherwise be choosing life. But you can choose life for that child. You can be a hero, a protector. You know, the, the, those who protected me, the pro-life voters and legislators who protected me, are my heroes. Um, the, there was an abortion ban from the time Michigan was started. Uh, before the Civil War, and then there was a 1931 abortion ban that protected me. I mean, those those people aren't even alive today. Those legislators, you know. Well, um, I think that's a great point, right? I mean, people who vote to to save the innocent, the most innocent in our society, right? The womb should be the safest place, and it unfortunately, tends to be the most dangerous. But people are going to vote for this that save children years from now who they will never meet, but they will be responsible for the gift of life 
that grows exponentially, right? You have, you know, five children. I mean, you know, your life is fruitful. And think of all those fruitful lives that will come into this world as opposed to, hey, let's just make money on this thing. And in the end, I've heard stories of people who, like your mom, unfortunately had the abortion and deeply, deeply regret it because they were coerced and forced into it because of the situation. And as they look back on it, they regret it with every fiber of their body. Yeah. Many of them are part of our organization, Save the One. I'm the founder and president of Save the One. And I have a global network of over a thousand, like literally a database of over a thousand who were conceived in rape like me and mothers who became pregnant by rape, mostly mothers who are raising their children and then women who regret aborting and birth mothers from rape and women who miscarried. Um, where they reach out to us because everyone else tells them, oh, you should be thankful. And they say, no, that was the only good thing that came out of that. And uh, and they, they just need someone to have compassion to relate. And is that savetheone.com? How can people look that up? Yeah, it's the number one, not the word. Okay. So savetheone.com and our Facebook page, Save the One. Um, we have tons. We have over 250 blogs, we specialize in defending all of the so-called hard cases in the abortion debate through our personal story. Now, because you, um, this is a late-term abortion ban in mm-hmm. Colorado, I just want to discuss, um, you know, the most common late-term abortions. I, I get Google alerts all the time, like in India, they have a ban after 22 weeks, a complete ban, but they're constantly hearing these cases in the court involving young rape victims. And so here's the thing. The younger a girl is who's being raped, the more likely it is that it's someone in the household or a family member who's been raping her, and the more likely it is that it's been going on for years. Right. Okay, think about that. Yeah. It is the baby who is the hero of her story. It is the baby who reveals the rape and, and has the potential to deliver her out of that abusive situation as she delivers that baby. Now, younger she is, the more likely it is that she's very far along in her pregnancy, where her parents didn't even know she was menstruating, okay, let alone pregnant. Oftentimes, these girls hide their pregnancy because they see this baby as their ticket out of an abusive situation. And in fact, studies show that when a girl gives birth under those circumstances, not only does the rape end for her, but for all the other young girls in her household who are being raped. Rapists, sex traffickers, and child molesters love abortion. They love abortion because it destroys the evidence and it allows them, enables them to continue perpetrating. The abortion protects rapists, okay, especially child molesters. Oftentimes, it is a the girl's own mother who is leaving her unprotected, turning a blind eye, or, or who takes her for the abortion if the perpetrator doesn't because it's usually the perpetrator, but oftentimes her own mother takes her for the abortion to protect her boyfriend or her husband or to protect her own reputation so that child protective services doesn't get involved so that she's not shamed so that people don't know that she wasn't protecting her daughter because she's not doing it for the girl. 
This is not protecting the girl. The baby protects the girl. Okay, so when people bring this up, and the other thing is that the further along the girl is, the more dangerous the abortion is. Yeah. And that goes for any late-term abortion. When they go in, and for a late-term abortion, they have to dilate her cervix. It takes, it's a three-day procedure. Um, It could leave her with an incompetent cervix so that she could never have another baby again. And when they tear the baby apart limb by limb with a dilation evacuation procedure, they call it DNE, the dismemberment abortion, there are shards of bone left behind. Like when they rip off the arm, the shoulder blade, shards of bone that can perforate her uterus and, again, render her infertile for the rest of her life, cause infection, and could kill her. Okay, and it's not like you're sparing a young girl of having to go through labor. She has to go through labor, but it's a much more difficult labor because you're delivering a dead baby. You don't have the hormones interacting like you do normally with labor. Um, With a young mother, petite mother, the normal standard of care is to deliver early. You can deliver four weeks early. She'll survive. Baby survives. You know, no problem. But a late-term abortion far more dangerous. Um, and, you know, you could just deliver the baby and have a live baby. Yep. Okay, so it's not like you're sparing her, you know, having to know what she went through and having to know about the baby. Like, she'll know. And it's much more, she'll know that she gave birth to a dead baby. And it is absolutely absurd to suggest that more violence in her body in the exact place where she was harmed is somehow going to bring healing. It does not, but the baby does have a way of bringing healing. Um, and then as far as the other late for abortion, they say that the child's incompatible with life. Again, that's absurd because as long as there's a heartbeat, you're compatible with life. Well, um, and you, and you have, and you've lived this story, right? You had, you had a daughter, adopted daughter that lived 33 days, right? Yeah, yeah, but most of those babies were aborted. Yeah. And in our organization, we have a plethora of people who went through this, whether they were the parents or the child. And the doctors are pushing, pushing, pushing to abort because the insurance companies um, want them to have a pro-abortion policy oftentimes. Um, And because you have states that allow wrongful birth lawsuits, they call it. Mm-hmm. No, they don't have wrongful abortion, but they have a wrongful birth because the insurance companies don't want us to pay for the care of the child. So they're very, very pro-abortion. And you have a eugenics mentality, too, within the medical profession, that they think that these are lives not worth living. And so they'll say that a child, for example, has a fatal heart defect. No, they're the ones with the fatal heart defect. The doctors have the fatal heart defect. Good point. Um there's something wrong with their hearts. And yeah, well, they're hardened, that's for sure. Um, and these children are not only compatible with life, but they're compatible with love. Okay. Well, they were they created out of that love, right? We're all created out of that love or none of us would exist, yet we want to kill that love that the Lord wants to bless us with. Yeah, so just give them a chance to be born. Deliver them and treat them when they're born. Don't send them home with, you know, perinatal hospice care. Treat them. Give them a chance to live. We, we have now the first um, 
trisomy clinic in the United States here in Michigan. And it was really because of the persistence of Brad and Jesse Smith. They got a doctor to start treating them at Mott Children's Hospital in, uh, you know, it's part of the University of Michigan. And now they've sent him dozens of children and only uh, less than a handful have died. When these children allegedly 90% die before their first birthday, and that's because they're not treated. Right. When if they can demonstrate now when these children are treated, they can survive and thrive. I mean, Brad and Jesse Smith, he, he's a vice president, say the one. Their daughter is 11 years old. She's got a special bicycle she rides. She's got a walker. She can go up and down the stairs. I mean, you know, and, and she communicates, okay, in her own way and is a joy. And they say that she's not compatible with life, that, that this, the trisomy 18 is incompatible with life. And they push, push, push abortion. Well, again, and it's all about money, right? It's insurance companies trying to save money. It's people trying to make money. I mean, you know, we're, we're doing this interview shortly after the Supreme Court just shot down uh, the Louisiana law that was going to make doctors at abortion clinics having have admitting privileges to hospitals. They don't care, right? They, not only do they not care about the baby, they don't care about the woman either. Yeah. So let's let's kind of, um, if you don't mind, I would love to sort of uh, dovetails into the other discussion. The people would say, "Well, we don't have the vote at the Supreme Court right now, so why bother?" Mm-hmm. Right? That's right. what people say. Yep. This is worth it. This one thing that we haven't done in this failed strategy of the pro-life movement for the last almost five decades. What we haven't done is done direct challenges to Roe versus Wade persistently over the last five decades. Okay, hasn't happened. We haven't had um, a total abortion ban that has gone up to the United States Supreme Court to, to directly challenge Roe versus Wade, and so we haven't kept this relevant. Um, Democrats have never, oops, accidentally appointed a Supreme Court justice that would even be willing to regulate abortion. Okay, all of their Supreme Court appointments have been 100% for abortion, through birth, after birth, for any reason, on demand, no regulations, funding, no parental consent, everything. Okay, so they've never, oops, accidentally messed this up. Republicans aren't even at 50% for appointing justices who would even be willing to regulate abortion.